0: So the series that we're doing right now, Words in Red, it's a series uh, through the sermons of Jesus. And we've looked at the Sermon on the Mount, and as we took several weeks to go through there, we saw that um, on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is wanting to show that he has the authority. So he, he, he says he's come not to, to get rid of the Old Testament, but to fulfill it. He's the only one who could fulfill the requirements of the law. And he's, he's, he's saying, okay, the rabbis see this meaning this, but I tell you it means this. He's showing that he has the authority to declare what the law is, what truth is. He himself defines truth. And then we got into the parables, and we saw that when Jesus is teaching the parables, he has a purpose in that. One, he wants to expose unbelief. He's using these stories to catch attention, and people are going, oh, that's really nice, do another miracle, please, but not actually getting what he's saying. And he's showing that, hey, look, you're, I'm just proving to you that you guys actually don't want to believe. But he's also doing it to provoke them to thought, to make them to think about, "Well, who is this Jesus guy, and what does the kingdom actually mean? And now we get into Matthew 24, and we get into what probably is the most controversial sermon that Jesus gave. It's known as the Olivet Discourse, because as we'll see, it takes place on the Mount of Olives. And it's when Jesus is wanting to answer the question the disciples ask about His coming. Now, we'll talk about what we mean by coming, or what the, what the, the disciples thought and what the Scripture teaches about that. But I want you to notice that in this first section, what Jesus says in verse 8 He, after talking about some pretty difficult things, he says all these things are the beginning of sorrows. If you have the NIV version, the New International Version, it says birth pain, which is actually a better translation here. It's this idea of of the fact that, that the earth is pregnant with purpose. It's waiting to see God's kingdom come in its fullness. That there's, there's this, this reality when a woman is going to, to give birth, her body prepares for that by, by contracting these muscles that are pretty much only used in childbirth, and they're contracted uh, ahead of time, way before the baby's born. They're not a great indicator about the timing, but they're definitely an indicator that there's a baby there. And the earth is like that. The earth is pregnant with God's purposes, God's kingdom. And so he's saying these things are like birth pangs, preparing this planet for the coming of Jesus, for the kingdom of God. Now, it's, I have to say that, that this, we're gonna take about six weeks to go through Matthew 24 and 25, all part of one sermon. And there are, are a lot of different opinions, a lot of godly people, a lot of people who love Jesus, who who love Scripture, disagree about what these things mean. And our goal is not to say, okay, we want to show you what it really means and everybody else is wrong. That's not really what we want to do. What we want to do is say, here's here's what we see the Scripture saying. We want to compare Scripture to Scripture. Here's what we see to be the things that are clear. Here's what we see to be the things that are harder to decipher. So we're going to spend three weeks in Matthew 24, and I'm doing the first section that is a little easier to decipher, and then the next section is the hardest bit, which I've left for Joe. (laughs) You're welcome, Joe. (laughs) And it's interesting because the Lord put it on Adam's heart months ago to teach two Thessalonians at our church camp dealing with the church in the last days. And he did a similar thing. He's taking the first chapter and the second chapter and the tough chapter, chapter two. He says, I leave that to Neil." (laughs) <laughs> this is how we treat leadership at Serpent's Church. <laughs> the truth is these things can be difficult to understand, but, but that doesn't mean we should shy away from it. There's a, there's a theological category that these teachings fall into. It's called eschatology. It's the study of the last things. And though there's a lot of difference of opinion about how these things come to pass or, or how we should interpret these eschatological scripture texts, The truth is, they're in almost every single New Testament book. So we can't ignore them. And the purpose of this series, The Word in Red, is to see what does Jesus say about these things? What is the the one whom we call Savior, whom we call Lord, what does he say about these things? And that's why we're looking at the sermon, or the Olivet Discourse. So when we pick it up in verse 1, it says... Then Jesus went out and he departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. Now, it's interesting because you don't see it as much in English, but the way this is is written in the original language in in Greek, it's this idea that Jesus has left and he's never coming back. And this obviously connects to chapter 23 of Matthew. In fact, if you want to just jump up, to verse 37 to 39 of Matthew 23, this is what he says. In fact, it's on the screen as well. I'm gonna read it from the, uh, oh no, it's not on the screen, forget it. Uh, (laughs) I'm just gonna read it right from the text. Where Jesus says, after having this confrontation with the religious leaders of his day, Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together As a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, notice he says, your house is left desolate. I say to you, you shall see me no more until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now Jesus has confronted these guys in Matthew 23 about the fact that they will pray, (coughs) I'm sorry, about the fact that they will swear by the gold of the temple as if that's somehow a higher sort of vow than just swearing by the temple itself. And they do this. They saw the temple as this great thing. They saw the temple as an expression, the Jews saw the temple as an expression of their devoted to God. We're so devoted to our God that we built this lovely temple. But is that actually what the temple was for? No. When David desires to build a temple way back in 1 Samuel 7, when he wants to build this temple for God, God, I live in a beautiful house. I want to make you a beautiful house. God says, Who asked, when did I ask for a house? He says, I didn't ask for a house. Heaven's my throne. Earth's my footstool. What do I need a house for? God's not confined in a spatial environment. He says, what do I need a house for? But he does say, you know what? I'm going to let your son build a house. And that house is going to be where people come and meet with me. And so the point was, David said, I'm going to do something for you. God says, no, no, I'm going to do something for you. I'm going to let there be a place where you can come and meet with me, the temple. And so Solomon builds this temple. It's just this glorious, beautiful thing. And then God's people disobey. And God has to send them, has to chasten them to the point of sending them to be captive, taken captive by another nation. And that nation destroys that first temple. And then 70 years later, some go back to Jerusalem and they rebuild the temple and it's not as nice and people are going, man, the first temple was so much better and they're mourning and there's a prophet named Haggai who says, don't mourn because this second temple, the glory of it will far surpass the first. And he says that because of this. The second temple won't just be a place where God comes and and dwells on occasion, like on the Day of Atonement. But it'll be a a place where God, when he incarnates, when he becomes, he puts on human flesh, will walk in and teach in. And that's what he did with Jesus. And so that when Jesus says, I'm leaving this temple and I'm never coming back, he's saying, don't you realize the temple's nothing? The glory of the temple's just left. So that's why when the disciples say, isn't this a beautiful building, Lord? Jesus says in verse 2, do you not see all these things? Surely I say to you not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, I want you to be clear in these first 14 verses that this section is really specifically talking about this beginning of sorrows, this beginning of birth pangs. And he says clearly doesn't he? We see this in verse 6 where Jesus says the end is not yet. Verse 8, it's just the beginning of sorrows. Then in verse 14, he says, after these things happen, then the end will come. And so all the things being described in these verses are things that happen before the end, before the Lord comes back. That's really important to understand. So when, when these guys are going, okay, Jesus, the temple's beautiful, and he says, look, actually what's gonna happen is that this beautiful temple you see, it's gonna be turned so upside down, there's not gonna be a single stone that's not removed. They're like, what? In fact, it's interesting that in that day, in that Jewish culture, to speak against the temple would often be seen as blasphemy, because if the temple is where God dwells and you speak against the temple, you are speaking against God. So imagine these Jewish men saying, isn't the temple beautiful? And Jesus says, this temple is going to be torn apart. That They're like, did he just blaspheme? Also interesting, there's a map that will go on the screen. Uh, Unfortunately, I don't know if it comes out. Can you see the yellow line? Is there a yellow line on the screen? Okay, good. That line shows you, that's the temple mount, the the square there. That's where the temple would have built. The line shows you the walk they would have taken down through the Kidron Valley up to the Mount of Olives. You can actually go on Google Maps and map the walk. It takes about 29 minutes to get there. I've been there. I've seen this. It's a pretty pretty cool thing. And when you go to the Temple, when you go to the Mount of Olives, you can sit on the Mount of Olives and you can look and you can see the temple. You can actually see what's called the Eastern Gate. It's all filled in now on that wall of the Temple Mount. But that's probably the gate that Jesus would have walked through when he left. So he says this thing that they might think this is about... This is almost blasphemous. And they had 30 minutes to mold this over, to wrestle with this. What did he say? What what did he mean? And how does this work? 30-minute walk to think this through. And so when they finally get to the Mount of Olives, verse 3, it says, Now as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Now, some commentators see this as three separate things. Uh, when these, he said they're asking three separate questions. When will these things be? Is one question. What's the sign of your coming? Is another question. And the end of the age. That's the third question. Others see two. when will these things be? And what is the sign of your coming? Those are two questions. The truth is, this is probably just one question. They're asking one question. Okay. So somehow you're against the temple. We don't get this, but when are you going to come? When is your coming? Now, this word coming there, it's a specific Greek word. It's parousia. And what that word means is it's, a, it's a, an idea of not just someone who kind of, oh, oh, look, Bob's coming into the door. He's someone who's just walking through somewhere. It's this idea. It was used of kings so that when a king had rule over a certain country, they would speak of, hey, the king is going to come visit this country. They speak of the parousia. When is the king going to come and be present in that country? That's the parousia. You guys following me? And so when they're saying, okay, when's the parousia? They're saying, okay, when are you going to set up your kingdom? When are you going to not just say, I'm Jesus the teacher, and show that you're Jesus the Messiah? We believe you're the Messiah. So when are you going to come in triumph? When are you going to say, here I am, I am now present to rule? When's that going to happen? That's the question they're asking expecting a military answer. Well, I'm gathering troops and we will go through the East Gate and we'll take that side and they'll flank on this side and then we'll take over Jerusalem and we will rule. But Jesus doesn't give a military answer. In fact, he spends, as we're going to see, several verses just kind of saying, okay, before that happens, you know what you're going to experience. You need to know what's going to happen before the end comes. Now, the time frame that Jesus is referring to is the, the time frame between the first time he came and the second time he comes. This is the, the time before the end, okay? It, it's commonly referred to as the last days. The book of Acts chapter 2 refers to that time as the last days, Okay? So there's still time period in between. There's, there's more to it than that, more specifics. That's next week. That's the hard bit that Joe has to kind of uh, cipher. But, but there, there is this reality that this is what he's talking about. Now, they didn't understand this. At this point, remember, the, even though Jesus has said to his disciples many times, the Son of Man must suffer many things, must be given over to the hands of the Gentiles, must be beaten, must be crucified, must rise from the dead, even though he said that to these guys several times, they didn't get that. They're still thinking, Messiah, military power, defeat the Romans, we take over the earth. That's still how they're thinking. They've seen him do all the supernatural stuff, so they're probably thinking, hey, we don't even have to fight. He's going to just kind of go whoosh and just wipe everybody out. It's going to be awesome. That's what they're thinking. They didn't understand the fact that there was two comings, his first coming and the second coming. So when, when we unpack these things, he's explaining things that they didn't yet get but that we now need to understand. Now, what I want to do today really is I really want to kind of bring out three things that we need to understand that happen before the end comes, three things that we experience before the end comes. And the first one, I think, is illustrated by how the disciples are dealing with Jesus here, and that is our ignorance is exposed, our ignorance about the temple. Yeah, the Jews had one idea about the temple, but we have our own idea about the temple, we make all kinds of mistakes about what it means to be the temple of God. We know, or at least we should know as Christians, as New Testament Christians, we should know that the Bible says that we are collectively God's temple, God's dwelling place, God dwells in our midst, but also individually we are the temple of God. But We make all kinds of mistakes about what that means and how that works. We can make the same mistake that the Jews make. We make a bigger deal about the temple than we do about what makes the temple the temple, the fact that God dwells there. You following me? So our ignorance is exposed about things according to the temple. But also, our ignorance is exposed about the future. We, we, We have all kinds of misunderstandings about the future. It's amazing how many people get confused about these things and divide over these things. We get confused. That's what is being exposed, our ignorance about the future. And lastly, we're exposed about the realities of of, our ignorance about the realities of Jesus coming. We don't understand this, and we need to understand this. This is one of the things that Paul, the apostle, said specifically. I don't want you to be ignorant of. We need to understand, because to understand is to be prepared. God wants us to know what we're going to be prepared. It's interesting when they say to Jesus, "The end of the age." they probably were thinking what the Jewish rabbis taught about the end of the age. That would be a reference that started way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. You guys remember this? After Adam and Eve have sinned, and God's kind of confronted them on that, and then God covers them with animal skins, God begins to pronounce the curses on man, woman, and the serpent. Here's what he says to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. This is what theologians call the proto-evangelion, which is the first gospel. He's saying her offspring, speaking of Jesus, will do what? He will crush your head, serpent, and you will strike his heel. This is a, a reference, the first reference to The cross. Now, the Jews didn't see that, but they did see, okay, something's going to happen. The Messiah is going to come. He's going to be the offspring of this woman, and he's going to crush the kingdom of Satan. That's the end of the age. This is what they were expecting. Now, we shouldn't be ignorant of these things. We should actually be willing to think through these things, not divide over these things, not be overly dogmatic about the things in this area that are hard to understand, but we should still be aware of these things. We, we need to know before the end comes that our ignorance is going to be exposed. We're going to learn more and more how little that we actually know. But then Jesus, in answering the question, look what he says, verse 4. Jesus answered and he said to them, what's the first thing he brings up? He says, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. Now here's the thing. Not only will our ignorance be exposed, but our world will be or will remain in turmoil. Before the end, that's what we expect. Our world is in turmoil. And part of that turmoil means this. Listen, religious deception increases. It increases. I try to find a statistic by how many world religions were sort of invented from the time of Christ. And no one can keep track. There's too many of them. It's amazing how many false religions are out there. Now, it shouldn't be that shocking because we are, by nature, as human beings, religious people. We want to worship something. We were made to worship something. The problem is we don't always want to worship God. Now, now, this is important because, especially in the context of these end times, do you guys realize that often it's cult groups that use these things, like the end times, to develop their their groups? So, So there was... Back in the 1800s and, of course, the good old U.S. of A., there was a a man who said, oh, Jesus is going to come back in 1848, I think he said. And and so he gathered 100,000 people who were believing this nonsense. And what happened? Jesus didn't come back in 1848. So that group divided. And guess who came out of that group? Seventh-day Adventists? Jehovah's Witnesses? Eventually, uh, some of those things spun off and they were taken by Joseph Smith, who created the Mormons. All these people took this end times truth, didn't ignore it, but tried to say, "Here's we're the ones who know it, you should listen to us, follow us to be ready for it. Jesus comes back. This is why you need to know the truth. Because if you don't know the truth, guess what's going to happen? You might listen to a counterfeit. Do you know how many millions upon millions upon millions of people there are who would claim to be Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses? So hard because these people say they believe in Jesus but they don't believe the Jesus of the Bible. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But he says they'll also come and say I am the Christ. Now this can mean saying they're saying I'm the Messiah and there's been many false messiahs of course over the last 2,000 years but it can also just mean I am anointed. I'm the anointed one. Again something occult cult groups often do is they say follow the leader. He's the anointed one and if anybody questions you oh you can't question God's anointed. Come on. If that sounds familiar to you, if you've heard that in a Christian church you've been in, that should be a warning sign to you. If you go to a church where they say, don't question the leadership, wow, there's a problem there. Hey, feel free to question us. Please don't backbite us and slander us, but please question us. Please call us on the carpet if we're not teaching you what this book says. Please, you know, hold us to account. But man, be wary of those groups that say, "Oh no, don't question leadership." Now, Jesus is saying, "Take heed, don't be deceived, because this, our world's going to be in turmoil, and that means religious deception is going to actually increase. In fact, Paul says it this way, in 2 Timothy 3:13, "But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse deceiving and being deceived. Now, can you, can you see why this is one of our motives why we're so? We, we take the book so seriously? why we want to unpack it, help you guys understand it. Can you see this is one of the reasons we do this? We don't want you to be deceived. We want you to know what's truth because we believe Jesus when he says you can know the truth and it'll set you free. But he goes on to say, listen, he goes on to say in verse 12, I'm sorry, not verse 12, where am I? Verse 6, He says, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. In other words, you hear about these different wars and things, these conflicts, the end is not yet. And he describes the kind of conflicts. He says, nations will rise against nations, kingdom against kingdoms. Now, the word for nations is ethnos. It's where we get the English word ethnicity. He's talking about racial conflicts. Isn't it ridiculous that we still have racial conflicts today? It's ridiculous. It's still in the church today. It's ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense to me. Why are we like this? Don't we know by now that there's one race, the human race? Why are we still believing this rubbish? Why are we still having these conflicts? But he also says kingdom against kingdom. These are political conflicts. Let's just think about these two issues, these two kind of categories of human conflicts. Racial conflicts... Political conflicts. What does that sound like to you? It sounds like this week in British politics (laughs) and U.S. politics and politics all around the world. It's just a reality, isn't it? Why? Why did you say, say these things must come to pass? Because, listen, we as human beings are still corrupt. We're still broken. That's why these things come to pass. He also goes on to say, Oh, actually, before that, let me read to you a great verse from the Psalms, right? Two verses, Psalm 118, about these conflicts. The psalmist says, It is better to trust in the Lord than to put our confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. And let me be really clear, okay? We should still be fighting for racial equality. Yes, we should, especially as believers. Amen? It should be. That's kind of weak. Amen? Yeah, that's, we should be pursuing racial equality. We should treat one another as equal image bearers of God. We should love each other. We should still be involved in the political process. But here's what we shouldn't do. We shouldn't put our hope in a political party or philosophy. Any of them. Here's what we also shouldn't do. We shouldn't think that we're going to sort out everyone's hearts apart from Jesus. He has to do that work. Now this is important because this is part of what Jesus is saying these things. Listen, he's trying to say, okay, the end is not yet. My coming is not yet. Guess what you're going to experience? These kinds of tensions. Does that mean we don't do anything about it? No. It means that we recognize that what we're longing for is the day when he comes back and he sorts it out. Now he also goes on to say, In verse seven, he says, and after he says kingdom against kingdom, he says, and there will be famines, pestilences, that's like diseases and so on, earthquakes in various places, and all these are the beginnings of sorrows. So this turmoil in our world, that means religious deception is going to increase, it means human conflict is going to continue, it also unfortunately means natural disasters are going to continue. One of the things that is 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 difficult for us to get through our heads is even as Christians I think it's hard for us and again this has got nothing really to do with the age of the earth or any of those kind of debates but it does have to do with understanding what the scripture says about this planet it does say that this planet is corrupted it's broken and not just because of the things that we keep doing and polluting it but that actually it's an inherited corruption because of Adam's sin This is how Paul explains it. Listen to this. In Romans chapter 8, he says, For the creation was subject to frustration, and not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay, and brought into freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as it is in the pains of childbirth. Same word, birth pangs, right up to the present time. What is Paul saying? If you read the context of Romans 8, 8, he's talking about that we are, the creation is longing for the day of the resurrection. Because when God resurrects his people, he's also going to reform this planet. Again, does this mean that we shouldn't be good stewards of the planet? No, of course it does. Does this mean we shouldn't think about green issues? No, we should definitely think about green issues. But what it means is we're waiting for the Lord to come back to bring that final sussing out. I don't know about you, but I long for the day when it's always like this. (laughs) Maybe it rains at night to keep it green, but then it's like sunny and beautiful during the day. I honestly believe that when the Lord reforms the earth, it's going to be better than we can imagine. But until that time, the earth groans. So what does that mean? Remember Jesus said, it's not going to be on the screen, just something that I want to share. But remember when Jesus said in, in John 16, he said, in this world you have tribulation. Do you remember when he said that? John 16, In this world you have tribulation. But he said, be of good cheer. Why? I've overcome the world. When he says that, I don't know about you, but I kind of think, well, yeah, that's easy for you to say, Jesus, you're God. Of course you overcame the world, and of course you, and now you had to live 33 years, and you got to ascend to heaven, and, I'm 48, I've gone you know, 18 years past what you did or 15 years past what you did. Come on, Lord. But you know what he means? You know why he says that? Be of good cheer for work in the world? Not because you're gonna be without pain in this world, but how did Jesus overcome the evil in this world? With good. Do you know how we face natural disasters and human conflict and religious deception? Do you know how we face it? We face it by the power of God in the name of Jesus for his kingdom investment. We, we, we go and we look at this pain, we sacrifice for this pain because we see, you know what, God, one day, soon and very soon, it's all gonna be sorted. And so we are motivated to live now. Even if that means, even in, if in that obedience we experience more tribulation, we're motivated to go that direction, why? Because he overcame the world and because he overcame Guess what we are? We're overcomers through faith in him. Overcoming means not suffering. Did Jesus suffer? He suffered in every way that every human can. But it wasn't the end. The resurrection was the end. Are you guys following me? That Jesus is wanting his disciples to understand, listen, you're wanting my kingdom to come, and good on you, but guess what? Before my kingdom comes in its fullness, our ignorance is gonna be exposed Our world's going to be in turmoil, and lastly, our faith's going to be tested. Look at verse 9. Jesus says, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Jesus is really being really plain. I mean, you can't make it plainer than this. He's saying you need to expect persecution. You need to just expect that it's a reality. One of the organizations that we support as a church is called Open Doors. And Open Doors is a ministry that seeks to support the persecuted church. The most conservative estimate, the most conservative estimate is that there are a hundred people who die for their faith every single month on this planet, who die for their Christian faith. Let me be really clear about that. The most conservative estimates is a hundred believers in Jesus die for their faith every single month, which means while we're having this service, on this Lord's Day, three of our brothers or sisters, will be killed for their faith. That's the most conservative estimate. Some say it's as high as 10 times that much. Open Doors is a ministry that looks to support these people as they go through these things. I'm gonna give you one example that I got off their website. It says an Open Door partner visits 12 Christian families to encourage them, this is in North Korea. They have only one Bible in the whole group, and each family must take turns to borrow it, he reports. They hide the Bible in the secret place. Once a month, three families get together and worship together. Once a year, all the believers get together in a mountain valley to worship and have secret fellowship. Okay, we all gave up the beach to come to church today. They give up something much greater. We have to force ourselves to read the Bible every day. They can't wait till it's their turn to have it in their possession. They go on to say, "We must always remember all the, This is what this is the this is actually one of the leaders uh, saying this. He says, uh, "We always remember all the prayer support from all over the world." Saying says one of their leaders, "It encourages us to live one uh, another victorious day." in Christ Jesus. Victorious day. Victorious day. They're not even allowed to say publicly they're Christians. If they do, they go into the labor camps. Victorious day. They barely have access to a Bible once every three months. Victorious day, they get fellowship, real fellowship for like church camp, which we gotta kind of force you people to, to sign up for. They have to risk life and limb to go have church camp with probably a bowl full of rice a day, no shelter, and they say, thank you for praying for us that we have a victorious day. Those people believe Matthew 24. Do we believe Matthew 24? I'm not trying to make us feel guilty. Praise God that we have freedom. Praise God that we each have... I have several Bibles. I left my Bible that I use for my devotions and stuff. My I left that at, uh, at York when I went to this conference a few weeks ago. It's kind of thrown me off kilter because I don't have that Bible. Oh, I've got like 15 others on a shelf I don't have that Bible. How pathetic. Folks, listen to me. Again, I'm not trying to make us feel guilty. (coughs) I'm trying to illustrate a point. Jesus says, listen, before I come back, here's going to be common experience. Your faith's going to be tested. People aren't going to like you. They're going to hate you sometimes. Now, we're feeling that building up little by little in our Western culture. We are blamed, especially as evangelical Christians, we're blamed for most of the problems in the world. Sometimes it's our own fault, let's be honest. Sometimes we believe stupid things and we do stupid things. But often we're just scapegoats. As the Christians were for the Roman emperor Nero when he was just a madman and, and just kind of was hating on people, he sets Rome on fire and says, it's the Christians' fault. People go, yeah, the Christians' fault and started feeding them to the lions for the next 120 years. Now now Here's the reality. Jesus is making it clear, you can expect your, ta- your faith to be tested. People aren't going to always like you. In fact, Paul says it just plainly. Listen, Paul says, in fact, everyone who wants to live godly, a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He didn't even say those who are successfully godly. Just if you want to live a godly life, I really want to serve Jesus. You're a weirdo. Sorry, I, you know, I really, I, 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 my contract says I can't work Sundays. I want to keep that because being at church is important to me. Well, then maybe you need to get a different contract or get a different job. Even just wanting to live godly in Christ Jesus says, Paul says, we're going to suffer persecution. Jesus says, listen, our faith is going to be tested this way. See, it's, it's interesting to me that what we keep doing in the West, we keep praying that we, our freedoms can last It's not a bad thing. The Bible says that we should pray for people to live a quiet and peaceable life. But you know what? A lot of these countries are praying for us that we'd feel a little bit of persecution that it might purify the church. That we might realize that our faith needs to be purified. It needs to be tested. It needs to grow. Jesus goes on to say, and then many will be offended. Literally, that could be read scandalized and will, notice, betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Now, I want you to notice the pattern that Jesus is setting for us, okay? You have this reality that not only is persecution to be expected, but false converts are going to be exposed. Now, again, I'm, this is not me trying to make anybody feel bad or feel guilty. I I don't think this is what Jesus was trying to do. Jesus was just trying to state the facts. Here's what's going to happen. But he is making it clear that there is such a thing as a false convert. He's saying they're going to be exposed by the persecution. They're going to see people persecuted, and they're going to go, what, how can I believe in this Jesus when he lets so many people, especially his own people, suffer? And they'll be scandalized by that. And once they're scandalized by that, what do they begin to do? It says that they begin to betray one another and hate one another. That phraseology, one another, is there on purpose. In other words, that persecution often begins in the visible church. This group of Christians hating on this group of Christians because this group of Christians thinks this group of Christians is a bit too strict or a bit too demanding. So then what happens? So then they start looking for something. What are looking for? False prophets. Pseudo prophets, is what the Greek says. Do, do, you, see, do you see the pattern here? You're, there's persecution that comes. Those who aren't converts, they just say, This is ridiculous. I can't believe in a, in a God who would allow me to be persecuted. They start hating on people, say, No, this is God's will for us. God, God allows us to be persecuted, He told us to be persecuted. So they start persecuting even more so. And then what happens, they look for false prophets to back up what they believe. This is what's going to happen until Jesus comes back. Paul writes about this. The New Testament writes about this all over the place. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Listen, Paul says, he writes to them and he says, I fear that somehow your pure and undivided devotion to Christ will be corrupted, just as Eve was deceived by the cunning ways of the serpent you happily put up with whatever anyone tells you even if they preach a different jesus than the one we preach or a different kind of spirit than the one you received or a different kind of gospel than the one you believed do you know why i underscored those things on the screen these are the areas where the enemy attacks forget about the, uh, another church is going to disagree with how we deal with eschatology that doesn't matter but is it a different jesus is it a different holy spirit is it a different gospel? If you have been part of a church that tells you you need to believe in Jesus and do all those all these different things, that's a different gospel. If you've been part of a church that says you need to believe in Jesus, and it doesn't matter if you repent or not, that's repentance stuff's kind of overrated. You're saved by grace. You don't need to repent. That's a different gospel. If you've been a part of a church that said, you know the Holy Spirit's working when you can't control yourself anymore, that's a different spirit. Bible's super clear. The spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. If you're doing something uncontrollably, it ain't the Holy Spirit. Jesus would never, I I had a, a young girl say this to me once, my Jesus would never send anybody to hell. And I said to her, you know, as kindly as I could, I said, I said, you know what, you're right, your Jesus wouldn't because your Jesus doesn't exist. He's a figment of your own imagination. The Jesus that is of the Bible warns about hell and then dies so that nobody has to go there. Different Jesus, different spirit, different gospel. This is what happens when persecution comes in. This is why Jesus warns us about this stuff. Now, should we court persecution? Should we live in such a way that people go, man, you guys are always up in our face with this Jesus stuff. No, that's not gonna help. We shouldn't look to be persecuted. As I mentioned earlier, we should pray that we can live quiet and peaceful lives, but we should expect this. We should expect there's gonna be persecution. We should expect that's what God's going to use. We should expect there's going to be false converts in our midst. This is one of the reasons why we so protect the pulpit. I have lots of people. There, there, there are some of you here that I am confident would do a good job teaching. And you might be thinking, well, then why don't you ever ask me to teach? How come there's only a few of you guys that get to teach? Or you bring some dude from out of town. Why is it that? The reason is not because we don't trust you. It's because we have a system set up to make sure that the people that are behind this pulpit... Have the heart of pastors, have a calling of a pastor and are being trained to be pastors, and they're rightly handling God's word, and it's not paranoia, it's protection. This is why we say, you know what we say, go back to the word and see if it's actually true. If it's not, call us on it. Now so far you're, you've been thinking, this has been a bummer of a message. I cannot wait to go to the beach. <laughs> Jesus was clear, before the end comes, our ignorance is going to be exposed, our world's going to remain in turmoil, and our faith is going to be tested. But here's the good news, and I'm taking some heavy words that he uses in the last three verses and, and treating them from the positive. Love will endure. Look at verse 12. He says, and because of lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Now, we, we know what this is like, don't we? we? We know that when we see, it seems like believers, you ever get frustrated which maybe, I call, let me take it back a bit. If you have siblings, you ever get frustrated when it seems like you always got busted and they never got in trouble? You know what I'm talking about? Now, I'm the youngest, so I thought that was my whole life. I'm so naked to do that. Always whining about injustice, you know? And we can do that as as other believers, can't we, to, to one another? It seems like, how can they get away with that sin and I can't get away with that sin? Or how, how can they just kind of worship so freely when I'm barely making it through and I know what's going on in their life behind the scenes? And we can see people doing things that we know are wrong, and we think, how can it be that people do things wrong and God still blesses them? How can this be? Lawlessness increases. We see the lawlessness and our love for people grows cold. Or we're the ones who are, oh, praise Jesus. I looked at porn for eight hours last night. Never repented of it. Oh, praise God. It's so good to serve him here. But I beat my kids. Oh, I, I love being here with my family, but I flirt with a guy at the office. And because lawlessness increases in your own heart, your love for God waxes cold. You see, the, the, the Lord is, is wanting us to be sober about these things. Why? Because His love for us endures. And he wants our love for him and for others to endure. He wants to produce that by his Holy Spirit. That's the way he says, verse 13, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. This is not God giving a condition to our salvation. This is not Jesus bringing a condition to our salvation. This is Jesus being a description to our salvation. He's describing those who are saved, they endure. And it sounds as tough, it is as tough as it sounds, endure. Now Ollie uh, is a marathoner, he has been to this unfortunate ankle. And I've always both admired him and thought he was crazy. Why would you want to run 26 plus miles? What a, ah, that's horrible. I I, I wouldn't want to ride a bike that far. You know why? I don't have much endurance physically. I wish I could say I'm all about the sprint short game. I'm actually slow as well, it's really pathetic, but I just don't have any endurance. But endurance is a good thing. Especially when it comes to love. See, here's the thing. Love endures, listen, love endures when we begin to obey. He says lawlessness increases, so we don't wanna be lawless, we wanna be obedient. Love endures when we obey from love, not for love. What did Jesus say? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. He didn't say, if you keep my commandments, you love me. We obey from love. Why would we love God enough to do what he says? Because he so loves us. He really does. And we obey from that love. That's when love endures. Listen. Listen. Love endures when we understand the nature and the source of love. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, 7, says, Love endures all things. That's what it says. Love endures all things. And John, the, the beloved disciple, writes this. He says, this is real love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God, so, God, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love one another. We obey, we love, we obey from love, not for love. You can't increase God's love for you, <laughs> You can't make God love you more. He is love. You can't make God love you less. He is love. So we obey from love, not for love. We understand that He is the one who's loved us first. It's His love for us that motivates us to endure in love and not pursue lawlessness. And lastly, he says, and this is the gospel of the kingdom, uh, will be preached. This gospel of of the kingdom will be preached in all the world, as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. See, love's going to endure when we end up laying down our lives for the gospel. Jesus says this. He says, if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. Let me be clear about this. This is not Jesus saying everybody needs to quit their jobs and go into full-time ministry. That's not what he means. He doesn't mean stop being a bricklayer, stop being a GP, stop being an accountant, stop being a nurse. He doesn't mean any of that. He means do those things for the sake of the gospel. Have a gospel motivation. Lay down your life to be a witness of the gospel. That's the call that he puts on every single one of his followers. I'm going to share with you guys some statistics, and then we'll close. They'll be on the screen. I was trying to read them on my notes, but I can't actually read them. This is from a website, peoplegroups.org. And according to this website, there's 11,747 people groups among the 7.4 billion people. Now, don't go to the next slide. Hold on. So let's see. What would you guess? Just kind of before we go to the next slide, what would you guess? How many of those people groups have actually heard the gospel or have access to being discipled. Next slide. Of those 11,000, there's 7,033 unreached people groups, 4.3 billion people. The gospel be preached and then he'll come. Now, this is a tricky theological area. (laughs) I'm not saying I know exactly how this works, but I am saying this, Jesus is saying, I want the gospel going out. By this website, go ahead, go to the next slide. By this website, a a people group is considered unreached uh, when there is no indigenous community of believing Christians able to engage this people, this people group with church planting. Technically speaking, the percentage of evangelical Christians in this people group is less than 2%. So there may be some of those places where there is a very small group of people, but those people are maybe being taught by missionaries and the people themselves haven't grasped what it means to be disciples so they can go and make disciples. In other words, there's a lot of work to be done. Before the end, there's a lot of work to be done. Folks, let's get to it. Seriously, are you unsatisfied with your Christian faith? Or do you kind of feel like I'm kind of just going through the motions? Maybe the problem is not that you're just going through the motions, but you're actually not going through the motions. <laughs> you're actually not living out your faith the way Jesus says it needs to be until he returns. Maybe you're, you're, you've, you've not wanted your ignorance to be exposed. You want to think you got it all sorted. You got it all figured out already. Maybe you don't want to believe that the world is actually going to be in turmoil until he comes back. You're hoping someone else, a politician or somebody, will come up with a plan. Maybe you're just not liking your faith being tested because you don't realize that, as according to Peter, your faith is more valuable than gold. Listen, God wants to grow us And he does so as we endure in love, specifically love for him, love for one another, love for his word, and love for the lost. Let's endure in that love until Jesus comes.